Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tactics, and tools to become a successful property investor. Charlie, I just want to say Happy New Year's. It's awesome rolling into a new 2023. Uh, just in case you didn't know, I've done a New Year's resolution. Want to hear it? What's, what are you, I was going to say, what's the resolution? So I have unsubscribed from all newsletters except for one. Can you guess? Is it the other podcast we do email? <laughs> I mean, I subscribed all but two. And one of them is propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. It is that newsletter. I go and went and put my name, my email in it, and now I'm going to be notified every single time we drop one of these episodes. So just put it out there. You could do, do you know what else we should going. put out there? That we do another what? podcast. If you're a business <laughs> owner, <laughs> we actually have another podcast called Business and Investing. It's been going a little bit longer than this show. And if you are a business owner and also interested in investing, I think you might find some things there useful as well. We've actually never done a cross promo. We've never done a cross promo. So there you go. So this is property and investing. This is business and investing. Now, before we ruin this and have to redo the intro, let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing. And I need to let you know that Grant and I and the property investing team are in no way, shape or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. Alrighty, Grant, today's episode is a little bit of a different one. And it's not quite a Q&A episode. It's not quite uh, what we're interested in or news style episode. It's kind of a mix of all of them. And if I had to sum them up, across the last couple of weeks, you and I have had some very interesting conversations. These are things that are not discussed publicly, not discussed in media that commonly either. And it's also hard to get information on them. And I thought what would be uh, quite interesting is for us to kind of open up that conversation and let people in on what we actually discuss about our own portfolios and what's happening in property. So are you up for it? I, I totally am. Wait, wait, you mean that we talk about things that aren't covered by the news at that said time? You mean that we're not just talking about buying more properties and doing some refinancing? There are other things that incorporate into this, Charlie? <gasps> Shock. Do you know one of the things I love the most about property investing and property in general is just how complex it is? how many layers there are to it. It's not just about houses, like it's about so much more. Yeah, there's a, when you think, when you think you know something, another thing opens up and you're like, oh wait, hang on, I thought I understood that more. Like we did previously the episode on offsets and I can't believe two guys were able to talk about offsets for 50 minutes. How did we find (laughs) the ability to talk about offset accounts for 45 minutes? That was disturbing. And And there was more, we could have gone longer. I like, we got up after that. Like, dude, there were so many things that we could cover in addition to that, like a part two. And I'm like, oh, man. But yes, See, it, this see? is a complex see? onion. Oh, well, being mindful of time and how we tend to uh, say we're only going to do a 30-minute podcast and go over that every single time, let's jump into topic one. I'm going to hit this one up, negative real interest rates. So, Grant, can you uh, explain what that is first before I start going into what's interesting about it? Happy days. Uh, So we have an interest rate, which is pretty like the retail interest rate where you and I walk into the bank and the bank says, hey, Charlie, have it lend you a million dollars at call it 5% interest rate. And you go, pretty reasonable. That's about what I got right now. 
See? And you go, thank you, Mr. Bank, for my interest rate. However, there is a concept called a real interest rate. And what that calculation does is it factors in the inflation on the interest rate. And so, for example, if you went into the bank and they said, Charlie, you can have 5% for your $1 million, you can then adjust it by factoring in a reduction of whatever the inflation is. So, for example, the more, more right, just to be clear on that, the bank doesn't adjust the interest rate. You take into Sorry, consideration you, the rate the calculation. of inflation. Sorry, the calculation factors in inflation. So you would go 5% minus the current rate is around 7-ish percent. And whatever the output is, is kind of what the real interest rate is. So 5% minus 7% is negative 2% as the real interest rate. So what does that mean? Why is that important, Grant? So it's important because when you look at the amount of debt that you have got, if it is a negative, it means that the debt is actually being inflated away based on the cost that you're paying for the debt, right? So if you're paying a 5% interest rate, which call it, I don't know, 50 grand. However, it's a 7% inflation. The debt on that million dollars is actually being inflated away at a value of 70,000. So the difference is the importance in that because you're actually inflating the debt away. Where on the other side, it wouldn't be the case as such. So don't you find this interesting? Like I would make, let's make an assumption, right? That most people have got money that they're borrowing at about 5% in the moment. And inflation has been roughly seven, maybe higher depending on what your personal inflation rate is. You know, at one point, if you were uh, buying a lot of lettuce, I think your inflation rate was about 100%. <laughs> oh, my house is full of lettuce. Yes. Yeah. So when you look at that, you could have, on this example here, on a million dollars of debt, if you borrowed at 5% and inflation at seven, you actually made $20,000 off the debt. Like if the asset value didn't change price at all, you actually made money on the financing. Totally. totally. So there was this saying that um, got shared with me early on in property that I think is uh, really fascinating, is that property is actually a game of finance with some houses thrown in. And it took oh, me a while to really get it because I particularly was very obsessed with like the actual asset. I would look at an asset and I want to know the yield. I want to know the expected growth. And I would take little to no consideration around like the finance aspect. And what I suppose became true for me later on is recognizing that this inflation thing and the power of debt and using that when it comes to building a portfolio could just be insane. Now, I have shared this story on our other podcast, but can I, can I share the story about my nan again? Of course. I love you, nan. So, of course you can. Yeah, so if my nan, which um, still going strong, I will mention as well, um, she bought a house in like uh, inner Melbourne suburb. So she's within t- 10 kilometers of the CBD. Now, she actually paid $11,000 for her home over a 30-year mortgage, right? So really, really interesting that over time, it's not just the growth of her asset value that has happened here, but it's the debt that was attached to it being inflated away. So think of this, if my nan went and bought that house and let's pretend she bought it on 100% finance, like how easy would it be to pay off an $11,000 mortgage today? One month. Easy. But that's inflation, right? That's the power of inflation here. So as investors bring in this today is that that factor of our debt being inflated away is what makes property a really powerful asset. Now, I know some people buy property debt-free and they prefer to do it in that way, but there is absolutely some power in understanding how leverage and borrowing money in today's dollars 
and paying it off in future dollars plays a role here. I am curious because I I put together a lot to make sure that I had a, a, a good view on this. I got a question for you because by that explanation, do you only buy properties when the real interest rate is negative because you want to inflate it away? I'll tell you what makes this particularly interesting at the moment. If you look at this year's results in property, I think nationally, um, property's down about 9%. Yeah, 7 to 9, yep. Yeah, okay. So, you know, we've actually had a year where asset values have gone down in a single year, noting if you bought before that, there's other factors to you still might be up substantially. But I haven't heard one person talking about the idea that, hang on, if you borrowed money, even at 5% and inflation is 7%, it might be worth holding on to some assets because your purchasing power is going up. Now, unless you have like prime Sydney real estate and you've been particularly hit hard, I mean, for myself, my portfolio is actually up uh, about 10% for the year, 9 to 10% for the year in property. Um, unless you've been hit particularly hard by negative um, dwelling values, you might actually be up substantially more than you think you are because you haven't just maybe gone neutral or a slight, let's pretend you lost a couple of percent here. You might have actually gained purchasing power because inflation is eroding away your debt at this substantial rate. This negative real re- interest rate isn't being discussed. Yeah. And that that is, like, to me, that is one of the main reasons why I'm looking at this going, this is a great time to buy. Um, for me personally, not financial, not financial advice. advice. Go speak to it. We've got to say that all so, the time. Oh. <laughs> all the time. Um, so it was actually really interesting. Uh, there were a couple of things that in my mind first triggered off because I'm like, okay, well, does this mean that we shouldn't buy when real interest rates are positive? Because, hey, like inflation is just not working as much against it. And then well, asset values could still grow faster than the debt, right? So you can still make money in a good market even if you are paying interest, to be clear. Totally. Totally. Because I, I went and I asked the question, I'm like, well, over history, is inflation been higher than interest rates more often or have interest rates been higher than inflation more often? And I'm going to ask you, Charlie, what do you think the answer is? Well, I'm a believer in personal inflation rate, right? I'm a, I really am. I don't think the CPI is what everyone goes through. And a really no. easy example is like, If someone has one car and drives uh, very little and another person has two cars and they spend an hour and commute each, like the price of petrol will affect them very differently than someone who isn't. Or if someone only eats organic food and we keep having floods and things that would impact the price of that food, well, their inflation rate is going to be very different than someone who's willing to just eat whatever's cheap. So I'm a really big believer in that at the general level – personal inflation rate is very different than CPI. Now, to make a point here, I actually feel like everyone's inflation rate is higher than CPI. I don't think anyone actually shops the CPI number. So I would make the guess, although it's probably not that much of a guess, that in the last 10 years, inflation has been substantially higher than interest rates. Completely. Uh, And another example on the back of that as well is like, for example, I rent and you own your house, right? So if you live in the house that you owned and, and you owned it outright, then you are not feeling the increases of the rental pain that I'm currently going through, which yeah, means- but I, I'm also not inflating away the debt though, right? Of the- Valid, valid, valid. See how, complex, see how complex this is? This gets. So you are correct. 
over the last, if I was to use the CPI number that the government throws out, which you and I both align with, everybody should not use that number themselves. You should probably calculate your own personal inflation rate because, by the way, they've just changed the way that it calculates too, by the way, Charlie, and didn't really tell anybody. But sidebar, last 10 years, inflation has been higher than interest rates because we had crazy low interest rates. However, I said, okay, well, ignoring the last 10 years, what was it? Like, what did it look like? And it's predominantly the interest rate is higher than the CPI or the inflation print that comes out. It should. Don't now, you mean that the other way around? Isn't inflation higher than CPI? Uh, you would actually be surprised. Uh, so, no, so I'm looking here. The oh, we, need, we, need rates, like a, we need like a Jamie from like the Rogan podcast where it's like, bring the <laughs> shot up. Actually, or yeah, yeah, no, so the I, <laughs> So some of the some of the data that I could could get out of Australia wasn't huge, trying to like slide it across itself. So I actually looked at the US on going back to the 1950s. And yeah, the funds rate was significantly higher than the inflation rate for majority. Like, like I'm talking 60, 70% higher. And I, I got to do better charting for these, but I was looking at this. I'm like, it is more often than not a positive real interest rate than a negative real interest rate. Wow, so this really is a very unique time in history we're going from there. And it was, dude, it was the same in the States. So if you go back over the last 10 years, same. so inflation was higher than interest rates, same as us, right? But this is just a unique time. If you go back to like the 1950s to about 2000, <laughs> like the interest rate is significantly higher than inflation. And, and it that, should be, to be clear, because if you're in the business of lending money, if you're like if you're a bank and you're lending money out, you'll be losing money on the uh, – or losing purchasing power to be specific on that. So for private yep. lenders, what a difficult environment. If you're lending money out at 5% and it's being eroded away, well, you have to find other things. This is one of the reasons why I think um, in the last – uh, we'll call it 10 years or whatever, a super low in, uh, interest rate environment, it's been very difficult for people that are in, into things like bonds to get a return because of uh, what is going on there. Again, I, I can't speak for the specifics of bonds. I won't pretend I know a lot there, but that's what I've heard on other avenues. But bringing this back to the topic at hand ground, like knowing that we're in this, has this changed your view on how to invest or how you're thinking about investing in property if your awareness to the function of debt has changed here? It's a great question. So the answer is, short answer is no. <laughs> like, so the reason I went back and looked at this data is I'm like, where are we sitting in this? Are we the norm? Like, is this the norm now? Like, have we just hit like negative real interest rates is just the norm and this is it. Now, what? when I went and looked over history after the last 10 years, I'm like, uh, Okay, that's the difference is interest rates are usually higher than inflation. So it's usually a positive real interest rates and property prices have gone up. As your nan story when she bought back sort of looking at this data, I'm like, there is no, for me, there's no huge cor correlation between the two. So when I look at it, I'm like, well, I'm just happy that the debt that I have on the investments that I own is inf being inflated away at a higher rate. However, I look at that more from the inflation then like the rate of inflation, which is 7%, as opposed to it being a negative real interest rate. I just look at it going, wow, okay, what are the banks going to do to respond to this? So overall, like it doesn't change too much for me. I'm still going to be buying. Uh, even if it went to a positive real interest rate, I'm still going to be buying. Like it's, I'm not too, not too worried about it.
What about It's you? actually changed a lot for me, and I'll express some things here. Across this year, I have raised my cash reserves in line with interest rates going up. So one of the things I've done to combat the impacts of interest rates on my portfolio has actually lowered my debt level, my LVR. Now, I still have debt. I'm not saying that I have zero debt, but I've actually changed the amount of debt I've had. And what has hit me is like I've done that as a defense mechanism to make sure that I can ride out a potentially more volatile time. I don't know what's going to happen, but I wanted to be prepared for anything. Now, in doing that, it's improved the cash flow on the portfolio. So paid down some debt, making more cash flow on the portfolio. However, I'm inflating away less debt. I had been looking through it in one lens. So, I mean, it's not the worst problem in the world, but I realized that, hang on, if I'm, I'm now using my cash and paying down debt, perceivably like that improves the cash flow on the portfolio. However, the cash flow I'm now producing on the portfolio, I got to pay tax on. So more profit in the portfolio has meant more tax. And also those dollars I'm earning are being inflated away. So I think there's this really interesting balance to strike between you could literally, in my case, and again, I look at this and go, if I paid off all my property and had no debt, I would lose the ability to use inflation as a tool to actually build wealth through purchasing power. So I'm really uh, struck by the idea that there's almost like this balance to play. It's like I want enough debt so that I'm utilizing uh, inflation in a way that is meaningful for me and my personal circumstances, not financial advice. Um, But then on the other hand, um, I don't want too much debt where maintaining the cash required to run that portfolio goes negative. Because it'll be easy to say like, oh, negative real interest rates, borrow as much as you can, Grant. Like, (laughs) Well, if you could make a 2% spread on the debt, why wouldn't you? But then you you now need to think about this through the lens of going, well, if I take on too much debt and markets turn or I have vacancies or whatever would happen where I can't actually handle the portfolio, well, then you could be end up in a very desperate position of having to sell assets, forced sale of assets. You have to sell something to make good on your debt. And uh, in every circumstance I've read about, when someone has to force sell assets, that's when they take the real losses. Totally. So they take the heavy losses. I actually run a scenario in my mind to see the correlation between like the real interest rate figure compared to my decisions. And so what I said, so the current real interest rate is like negative two. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, how can I make it negative two? Well, I can have 1% interest rate minus 3% inflation, negative two. Or I can have 10% interest rate minus 12% inflation, which is again, minus two. And then in my mind, I'm like, through those three scenarios, would I still play it the same? So my question to you, Charlie, is imagine interest rates was 1% and inflation was 3%, so negative 2, versus interest rates were 10%, inflation was 12%, which equals negative 2. Would you play those two environments the same way? That's a really well thought out question. I uh, wish you'd have told me it before the podcast so I could put some more thought into it. Dude, for me, the answer was yes. I'm like dead set. I would play those two situations completely. My borrowing capacity is going to be fundamentally different when interest rates are lower. I'm going to be able to borrow more because obviously the government wants me to get more things. Inflation is at a steady state, right? And I'm like, I'm in a less volatile market. 
However, in the other one, 10% interest rates minus 12% inflation. I'm like, dude, that, that inflation is scary as hell. And not to mention the government doesn't want me borrowing anything. However, it's still a negative to real interest rate. And so I'm like, the real important one for me is not the negative two. The negative two is a great trend indicator. It is more what's the interest rates doing and what's inflation doing. I feel like this is one of those things where it's like, uh, you know, where they talk about, well, of course, you should just buy all the assets when it's like the absolute bottom of the market. Like logically, that makes sense. But then emotionally, that's not what happens. So most people panic, you know, do you know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm sitting here and I'm I'm trying to be honest with myself because this has been interesting. Like I have a substantial amount of debt, a, a very substantial amount of debt. I also have a substantial amount of equity. So um, in the means of being uh, transparent here is like I have like, I'm going to say over 4 million debt. That's a large amount of debt. Now my LVR position is healthy and like I'm in a, a good place, but I would be lying to say that having 4 mil of debt when an interest rate goes up doesn't affect me more than if it was a million dollars in debt. Complete. See what I mean? So Completely. size of the portfolio even goes into this in a deeper level than just, hey, you know, like – how, how would you play it? Or, you know, would you be able to do it the same? Your stage of investor came out as well. Now, yep. in your suggestion here, I would make the argument that the 10% environment would probably be when you could buy better assets because there would be more nervous hands. Because not Then the 1% people. probably booming market and you like you could overpay or buy a dud asset. See? And th- this is where, like, these figures and where everyone's like, oh, my gosh, like, inflation's going crazy. Oh, my gosh, interest rates are going up. It doesn't, like, it's, like, your situation. It's, like, how you interpret it. It's how you will change it. But I, I just found it fascinating. It was an awesome thought exercise. All right, let's jump to the next topic. As, you know, so, we're supposed to do a 30-minute podcast and we're 23 <laughs> minutes into the, the first topic from here. All right, I'll leave this one in. Uh, so one of the concepts or the topics that we have been talking about, Charlie, uh, which has kind of come from myself and, and Hazel, where we're looking at potentially buying our own house of residence. And boy, have we bounced around yes and no like crazy to the point of probably completely annoying you, Charlie. And so no, I'm actually, curious. Just to, while we're there, I actually love it when you send me a house or an idea for what you want to do for your PPR. <laughs> And I love hearing people's ideas and strategies as well. I love looking at the thinking they're putting into it. It's utterly fascinating. What? It's just feeling their uncertainty going, oh, you have no certainty on this at all. I'm like, I don't. One of the symptoms that has occurred from doing um, our other podcast and hopefully this one is people send things and ideas and questions to me, which I love to receive. Yeah. Right? I actually love to hear what's going on for people and trying to understand it. Now, I never give financial advice and nor would I but I do aim to be an empathetic ear and uh, even help point point people in a direction that may be helpful with a book or a course or someone who is qualified to give advice. So I'm very, very interested. And so one of the questions that I've had to you is like, can you buy a a principal place of residence or, or PPOR or essentially the house that you live in that can also be an investment? Because I look at the places where I want to live and the prices of those places and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> this goes against all of my investment philosophies. Like every one of my investment properties does not match much of the data. I could like tilt my head to the side, Charlie, and be like, yeah, totally for capital growth. Sure. 
But see, I look at this very differently. I think you're missing a ton of layers even answering that question. So it's like, is it possible to buy a house that is also an investment? Yes, it is. I would agree with you there. Yes. Yeah. Does that make it a good decision? No. And in your case, I will say, Grant, like you are a little bit savvy in the idea that you're trying, in your example, to buy blue chip Melbourne property. Yes. Right. So some people have, have that as an investment strategy. The ones where it gets really interesting in my view, right, and we'll come back to your situation because I, I think it is a fascinating <laughs> one again. Right. So let's pretend uh, you're a young family and you've got kids and you need support from your parents, but they live in an area that it's like, let's just say you know is a shit investment. Well, then are you going to buy a PPR in that area to get support with your family or are you not? Right? Yep. Or are you going to – so there's all these situations that would have people need accommodation that isn't a great investment. And what I find really interesting is when people try to justify it as an investment. Really, really interesting. So they'll – in the example here is like let's say someone has a young family and they want to live near their family so that they can get help with the kids. Common story. Yep. And then they'll start saying, well, well, you know, I wouldn't be paying rent then. At least I'd be paying something down. You know, like rent money's dead money. And the idea being that if they bought that home there, you know, all property goes up every seven years. I'm sure it'll go up a little bit. But see how it's now become a compromised decision? It's using so general statements. It, yeah, because they don't acknowledge that if you bought a house in that area is the idea being that, well, that's your borrowing power tied up. It's actually opportunity cost in you could have bought other investments to do so and maybe rented in that area if appropriate. Or for other people, this was a huge one uh, for us, is like uh, with kids coming along, we wanted to be in a home we owned. Yep. Right, so we didn't want to rent when, when we brought Jack into the world because it was like it was an emotional need. It wasn't a logical need. So these are the ones that to that point is like it becomes really, really fascinating. I think a lot of people delude themselves into this like hybrid thing where they can get the best best of both worlds, but they actually get a compromise of both. And it could be uh, often significant and detrimental. And the idea of doing that is just very, very, very hard for people to, uh, how can I put it? They want the Goldilocks scenario, but it's very rare does that exist. I yeah, it's almost close. <laughs> it was, there was a scenario that I was running through the back of my mind, Charlie, on this. Right. Uh, so my parents live in Gippsland, Victoria, and ideally, Hazel and I want to buy in like, Bayside, uh, which is near sort of the Bay in Melbourne. Um, and I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, from any time, we'll call it a couple of years ago, before I had investment properties, I would look at Bayside now and I would be able to convince myself that it's a great investment. Just because. But, I of, mean, it has been. If you historically, historically yeah, no. look, I mean, you could do worse. I was good. That's, that, is a, that is a fair point. But then I look at it and now that I've got investment properties and I've got this experience of what to look for, what not to look for, what, like, what things seem to increase the value of a property and increase potential rents versus not, et cetera, as well as the concept of investment property versus a house that you buy, I start looking at this going, oh, my gosh, if I go and borrow like a million, 1.5 million, like, wait, 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 where many- are you borrowing a million and getting in a Bayside? Let, let's be real. If you got a house, you want it as a PPR in the southeastern suburbs uh, that I know you're looking at, you, you, you're cutting a check two mil plus. Uh, no. Minimum. 
I'm trying to be relatable. So then from there, I'm like, you know how many investment properties I can get for that, Charlie? You know how tied up I will be to not take the moves that I want to take in investment properties to go and purchase that. And it was it is the thing that plagues my mind is do I want to have that now, noting that I think it might increase, but like that's a swing of the bat for the next 10 years, unless I earn substantially over the, <laughs> over the next couple of years out of the business. But I'm like, that is like a decision that has second order consequences of like, well, you are now handcuffed for the next 10 years. And that yeah. was the thing that killed me because I think if I rewound a couple of years ago, I'd be like, let's do it. Because I wouldn't understand the second order consequences. I wouldn't understand, well, what am I actually giving out? So it was one thing to look at, is this a good investment for the house itself to increase? And you've shared that, yep, Bayside's done quite well. But the other thing was like, well, what else is it actually impacting? And it was all of these other things where I'm like now leaning on a, mm, I think you, to your point, I think you can buy an investment, but it comes down to like, is it going to be the right play for you? It completely hamstring you in multiple ways. So let's That's go totally. deeper in that. Is like let's pretend you bought a property for two and a half mil in the southeastern suburbs of Victoria. Completely doable, by the way. Totally. Uh, there's you could spend a lot more than that. But the idea being of like it's not just that it stops you from in, it may stop you from investing because your borrowing power is tied up. Right. Yep. It's also the idea that it may handcuff you to work or employment or a job that you now have to earn at that level to support that mortgage. So all your income is now tied up supporting that debt as well. And that can be very challenging for people if they're not in a career or business that would have them be okay with that. I've actually valued flexibility a lot in my own personal circumstance. That's probably one of the things that's stopped me from uh, buying a massive house or over uh, committing myself is because I like the ability to change what I'm doing for work and have some yep. flexibility with what we do in business. There are some pros with it as well. We'd have to acknowledge though is that you do get the tax-free capital growth. So if you were to invest in a blue chip suburb of Melbourne and historically remained the same trend, you could make some significant gains, you know, on your actual like paper wealth position over that time in the next 20 years potentially, let's say. But that's kind of your trade-off, right? It's like, am I going to take the tax-free capital growth that I have to support the debt? Could be challenging, could work out versus am I going to invest more in other assets where it's got a rental income and have less uh, what we call a personal debt? So essentially I kind of landed on this point where and in my view as of the moment, it's like a house that you live in can have a component of it being an investment grade house, but the majority is it's an emotional purchase. You're looking for somewhere to raise the family. You're looking for the place that you want your kids to go to school. You're looking for that thing. I think in the way that I view it is, Grant, it is close to impossible for this house to be an investment. You need to buy an investment property for it to be an investment. I said, this thing can increase in value. Yes. And I can buy the right house on the right street. Yes. That is just a component of what is an emotional, an emotional purchase. Like for me thinking that uh, this property is going to be the best investment and use of my capital, I'm probably not going to buy an asset that me and my wife want to live in or me and my wife want to raise kids in. <laughs> like I think that if I want an investment, just fucking buy an investment property. If I want a house to live in, just fucking buy a house to live in. Don't try and sit in both camps because 
yes, you might be able to find it, but oh my gosh, will you rip your hair out trying to figure out where it is, the compromises between the suburb you want to live in versus the best that, You won't like, find it. It's not findable. It, it, it's a compromised decision. It's like, do, so, it's compl- like, do I want to go up or do I want to go down? You can't, you can't do both. Like it's, and, you will always find some compromise on that. And that's where my head landed. I'm like, I'm like, sure, there is a component that can be an investment, but this is a house to live in is a freaking house to live in. Stop trying to tilt your head and sell yourself, Grant, on it being a good investment. You're buying a house to live in in a suburb that you want to live in. Like, just accept it for what it is. If it goes up, great. If it goes down, great. It's just you want to live there. That's it. (laughs) Call a spade a spade. Stop being a dick. And that's what I said to myself. I think of it in similar lens but a little bit differently. So, And I'll I'll express why is uh, I just don't rely on it. It's not a the part of my strategy I rely on. Like I'm not going to intentionally buy an asset to live in that will go down. Like I just wouldn't do that. If I was going to uh, go, let's say I needed to live in an area that I was pretty convinced the asset prices were going down, I would rent. It doesn't make any sense for me to purchase unless forced to, but that is unlikely with my uh, life circumstance. So if for whatever reason that was the case, I would rent in that area and invest elsewhere. Now, on the other hand, and if I was going into, let's say, wanting to live in an area, I would be very cautious of just not maxing myself out with that is my only investment because if it is compromised, I'm probably going to be sacrificing returns elsewhere. So personal view and opinion for me is that I don't want to buy too much house that I can't invest outside of my house sufficiently where I don't have to rely on it at all. This is like a, a nice little icing on the cake. Now, you totally can still do reasonably well, and I have. Like the PPR I bought has actually tripled (laughs) in value since I bought it. But that was luck. That wasn't intentional. So that is something that I I bought a uh, home when I was about uh, 22, maybe, around then. So I've had it more than 10 years now, and it's just so fortunate that by chance, because, again, I put it wasn't an intentional investment, but that's actually – I'll say near tripled. I won't say tripled. It's near tripled over the last, let's say, 12 years or whatever I've had it for. So you can and definitely do well out of it. That's the point. Yeah. and that, that, But that's the thing, right? Like if I was looking to buy a house before I got into investing, I would have probably done something similar, right? But now that I've done investing and I'm looking at a house to purchase, I factor in so many other things now. <laughs> like it's just the, as, as would you. Like imagine you were to sell that place and say, let's go and buy another one you would factor in different things than when you bought that your house of residence originally. Yeah, to, to the point of this conversation, just accepting it as a place to live as the priority and valuing in that way. Exactly. Call a spade a spade. Can I, can I throw one more here? How much do Go. you value a home office now in a house? It's non-negotiable. <laughs> so would you overpay like- for a house? It's in the same street. It's got the only difference is it's got a, a home office. Would you overpay for that asset just to have the home office because it serves your lifestyle? I would, and I generate a lot of money from it. So yeah, but case in a, point, you've just made the asset not a good investment because you've compromised completely. on going for what may get the best return to your personal circumstance. And that's that was that's where I landed. Because I was like looking at all these houses and I'm like, I wouldn't live there. I wouldn't want to raise a kid there. I'm going to have to do renovations to that. Oh, if my wife gets pregnant in the next 12 months, do I want her to deal with that? No. And I'm like, well, da 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 And I'm like, dude, none of this is investment thoughts. Like this is just- We're Justifying school zones? How is that <laughs> yeah. an investment thought? <laughs> it's, it's not, right? Like, unless my kids are my retirement plan, which I still argue they might be. 
probably actually I will say I shouldn't make that comment. I, I dare say that if you, school zones may have been a good uh, investment strategy. I know people yeah. who would pay more for an asset to get into a certain school. Wouldn't surprise me if there's people out there doing that. Anyway, let's jump into the next topic. You actually touched on a really interesting point in the previous question, which was like, well, how much is too much house? And this is like the perfect segue into this whole point. So Charlie, like straight out. So how much is too much house when it comes to buying your principal place of residency versus like investments? So this one is actually a Q&A. I get this question a lot. So uh, common questions that come into me is, first off, people trying to justify me why a PPR they want emotionally is a good investment decision, which I will not be convinced. I know it's my opinion, but I will not be. And then the second one is, is well, uh, how much house is too much house? Like how do I even think about, well, is this house I'm looking at buying, is it too much and going to hamstring me or is it not enough? Like where do I find the bounce? Can I jump in? i got a question for you. I mean, it is our podcast. To- you can do what you want. <laughs> As a percentage, I have to know, what percent of those questions are from people who have just bought the house realizing, oh, shit, I've made a bad decision versus people looking to buy a house thinking that it might not be the best decision? It's a really good question. I'm going to say it's about half and half. Numerously, these are the situations I come up against. Someone's bought a a substantial PPR. And then realized, oh, hang on, I can't actually do any investing because all my income and borrowing power has been tied up. And they're now yeah. in a beautiful home that they're struggling to downsize from. And I, I can totally understand. To Wouldn't you to be? Totally, dude, my wife would be wrapped, kids would be wrapped, or future kids would be wrapped. Like, I, can't, I don't want to, I don't want to rug pull them. Can you imagine coming home to your wife and she's got a beautiful house and she really loves, and she loves it, right? It's perfect for her. Perfect. And you have she to come out it. and you're like, I got to take you out of this. Yeah. And she'd be like, why? And you'd be like, we're going to do investments. Just wait. It's going to pay off in a couple of decades. Trust me. What a sell. What a sell. <laughs> I know exactly what happens in that circumstance. You go work your face off to keep the house. <laughs> what is it? Why can't we have both? Well, I'm going to need to earn more money. That's what you're going to do. The second one that comes up for me a lot, though, is people that are on the investment journey. So they're buying investment properties, and maybe they're either renting at the moment, or they're in like a little townhouse or something, and they're like in their, they're in a starter house they may have purchased, and they're looking to when do I upgrade to my PPR that I, I want to live in for a longer duration of time? That's that's the more common ones. Yeah. Um, so th- this is where it's like I really, after being asked so many times about this, I decided I would create like some starting points of like ratios and rules that might be helpful. And these are just my opinion, right? You can clearly avoid any of the things we talk about on this podcast and probably do pretty well in life. There's other ways to do it. Well, there's people out there that have made a fortune never investing in property, right? There's other ways to do life. So I I completely acknowledge that. But I said for, for me at this stage, I said I never want the PPR I own and live in to be more than 30% of the property portfolio I own. And I think that is a good, healthy place for people to think about because if you, let's say 70% of your property portfolio is your PPR, there's just so little working for you outside of your own property that you're potentially never going to get the income or growth from outside your property to like make a significant impact on the home you're living in. Now, you may start at that point, you may have your PPR and only a small amount of investments, but this is something to think to over time in like plotting your moves and acquisitions of where you want to end up. 
Now, for me personally, uh, at the moment, my PPR is about, I'm going to say, around the 20% of my portfolio value. And that means that 80% of my portfolio is working outside the PPR I own. So it's a very powerful ratio where it's like I'm getting uh, more investment working for me and rent coming in and cash flow because that's where I've elected to stray things for me. Now, I will actually upgrade my PPR in future and my plan is to follow my own rule here when it comes to that. Now, for someone that doesn't have a portfolio, I'll throw in a sub rule, is the idea being that if your PPR takes up more than 30% of your income, it's going to be very difficult for you to get borrowing power to be able to do substantial moves. And um, I actually got that rule from Dave Ramsey. That's the one they actually look at and that's where they're weighting it. And to the point is like if 50% of your income is tied up on your mortgage, then you look at your living costs of like food and electricity. There's just not a lot left over to do anything with. Totally. Now, they are definitely not financial advice. And if anything, I'm being encouraged of people being like risk adverse and conservative here because in either scenario, it's like you buy a house that's too much and it takes up too much of your income or you are in a scenario where you're spending too little and like you're just suffering and hating life because you never get to enjoy any of it. You kind of don't want either of them. Like you want to find a happy middle ground for you and work with a great team that can help you get there. It's, it's interesting you say that. When we've spoken about this like forever, I reckon, because this is always something that I've bounced around uh, as a concept. And so I landed on 25% just because I'm like, I'm a little bit more. I'm like, I love more investments, love more investments because I see it as a four to one, four million like investment property, one million in a personal house as my sort of ratio. So the challenge that I've had, that I've got a question for you, Charlie, is at what point does someone pull that trigger in your opinion? And I'll share mine after. It's like, is it great in a perfect world? No, no financial advice. You know what? Screw it. You're, to me, to friends, would it be invest in one to two to three well, million? I don't think I'm allowed to give financial advice to friends either or family. Damn it. Like, I think in general, we're not well, allowed talk to, to yourself give financial then. advice at all. <laughs> talk to yourself then. All right. So, talking to yourself, <laughs> imagine you went and bought, do you buy a million dollar house for yourself to live in? after you've got $3 million worth of investment properties. Is there a button push at that point? Is it circumstantial? Is there, oh, well, just if you were starting out, how would you do it? Okay, I'll, I'll say what I did and I think that's what I elected for me and what I would advocate for. But this is just for me. Like you mentioned the idea of circumstances. People have stuff going on, right? It's like if totally. you've got sick parents, you like I actually know someone where they've just found out they're having triplets. Talk about a life changer. You thought you're having That's one kid a- and now you're having three. Your life plan's just altered immensely. <laughs> Out the right? door. So, yeah. So and your risk tolerances, all those things. So when I look at the stages here or I think about it, stage one is like income. I don't think Again, my opinion that people should get too extravagant with investing in property or any other asset until they've worked out how they're actually going to earn income in this world. Because it doesn't matter what asset class you go, if you have the ability to build a higher income, that seems to have the biggest factor. Yeah. Right. So if you yeah, can invest a hundred grand a month into shares or property, you're likely going to do better than someone who invests a thousand dollars a month. Right? Income is the discerning factor. And in property, it's a it's an expensive sport. Your ability to come up with new deposits, right, makes a huge difference. If you're the type of property investor that just always has to wait for equity, 
before you can buy the next house, you're going to go a lot slower than someone who has the ability to contribute money to their portfolio. So my conclusion for me was that the first section is I've got to get the income thing sorted. I have to prioritize in my 20s working out how to earn. Like So that was my stage one. Um, stage two, when I look at it, is I think everyone has to pick a path. You're either going to do the rent vesta thing or you're going to buy what I call a starter home, not the dream home, and then you're going to invest after that. And that is where circumstantial things come into it. You may not be in an area where you can rent. You may be in an area where buying is important for your family or not important or you've got a wife that wants to feel secure, a place to ride their kids. There's a whole bunch of reasons why they're there. But pick a path and really elect where you're going to go with that path. And then I think you get yourself to a position where you've got enough assets working for you and compounding in both, right, in either one. And then eventually you make the decision that you'll go, right, I'm going to go for the uh, house I want to live in more substantially. If that suits you, again, there's just all these things. Like I've opened the idea that I'd be happy to rent a pent- penthouse in Melbourne. I don't need to own that. I actually probably wouldn't want to own a penthouse in, in Melbourne and an apartment. But it'd be fun to live in. I could I could see myself doing that. It's okay to make decisions like that if you're up for it. You don't have to um, own the house you live in if your uh, circumstance would dictate it. But I think that's a really um, healthy way to construct a game plan for someone themselves. So income, rent vest, or start a home, build the asset base. Then once the asset base is on track to being able to support your goals with investing, so maybe it's your cash flow goal or your net wealth goal, hit the trigger. Now it's time to go into that 30% PPR rule or 30% of income rule, which is suitable for you, and lay it up. Then you can enjoy it a bit more. I love that. Obviously, I went down the uh, let's go investments and then make the decision around at what point do I go and hit the, the button. But this is why I like those two rules, right? Because 30% of your property, like your house, is like the total value of whatever assets you own, whether it's property shares or otherwise. The interesting part to that is your second point around the limiting uh, sort of debt to income of being about 30%, right? Which was the Dave Ramsey concept. Because that is the one thing that supports no matter what path that you take, right? Because if you go and buy your starter house, and it's 50% debt through your income, right? So you're paying, imagine you're earning $10,000 a month and you're paying $5,000 a month for your mortgage repayments on that. To your point, it's going to take you forever to go and start trying to get into investment properties, et cetera, which is why I really want to articulate the importance of that TP of those two concepts overlapping. <laughs> because if you go, cool, I'm going to get a starter house first, Charlie, and you go and buy a $2 million starter house. That's not a starter house. And- what are you going to do for your investment property outside of your scenario on what you earn, obviously? Because if you're, to your I, point, if you're in $100,000 a month, very different scenario. I, w- I want to share some more things around this. Is like, um, first off, is like, these are just my opinions. I'm not saying there's not other way to do things. There definitely is. But I found this helpful for me and I hope that this thinking will be helpful to others. Um, the second thing I'll say is that it will test your patience. I'll admit I've been tempted many times to go and just lash out and buy PPR and get into this idea that I deserve it or something like that. And uh, this is part of what makes being an investor so challenging is this delayed gratification and patience. Yep. So, uh, you know, like I've got friends who I'm seeing them buy dream homes now and I haven't bought that level of home yet. You know, and I want to keep up with the Joneses. 
want to go and buy one of those things, but I just look at the opportunity cost against the goals I have with my net wealth and portfolio, and it can be difficult in those circumstances. So expect to be challenged. Like how many times as a rent investor have you sat there and gone, I want to buy a PPR? You know what's funny? It's like a weekly occurrence until I go and do the maths on. So after I buy this PPR, when could I buy the next investment property? And I just don't like the answer. Never. <laughs> I'm like, and I just see that I'm like, I don't want to wait. Like I'm like, no, I want to keep going, baby. And so, yes, that, that's been the challenge to me. And it's almost, it's almost like if you go the investor path, realize that you were going to go so deep in looking at any house that you look to buy to live in, where you're just like disappointed. You're like, oh, the returns suck. Like, it's like, what do I expect? So well, this is, is what, it not surprising why so many investors get caught at only one or two properties? Not many make totally. it to – like I, I'm in a position now where I've got 11 and looking to do more. It's because of that delayed sacrifice. If I had done a massive house, I would have got locked at three maybe. Yep. And second then order consequence. Second order consequences. So yeah. um, I, I, I don't know who come up with this saying, but I like this idea is like, well, if you want to achieve something at you know, only the 1% of people who achieve – well, then you have to accept that you're going to be doing things that are very differently than what the other 99% are doing. So if you are someone who feels the need to conform with everyone else, you're likely not going to achieve substantial results when it comes to anything. Totally. And you know what I would say, Charlie? The 1% of people are the ones who got to the end of this podcast. So you're probably sitting in the right spot. That probably is our watch-through rate. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's wrap this one up. All right, just want to say thank you to everybody for joining us. And just remember, head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your details and get reminded every single time we drop one of these episodes. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Property and Investing.